Where's Fielder? He's gone to the dogs. Welcome once again to the Gone to the Dogs podcast. Your host, Steve Fielder, coming at you one more time through the miracle of Al Gore's internet. Um, those of you out there are streaming this thing probably on your phone, maybe listening through your Bluetooth on your truck, all the various ways we can do it. I wish we could just sit down face-to-face every week. Oh, we can't do that, obviously, but we can at least get together through this medium, and I'm very pleased uh, that we can, and especially pleased today to have uh, a friend that I haven't known all that long, but it didn't take very long for me to figure out that this is a good guy that I really enjoy talking to, and I know you'll enjoy hearing his story. I will briefly give a plug to the book I wrote called Gone to the Dogs, a Coon Hunter's journey. Uh, It is available online. Uh, You go to stevefielderbooks.com and uh, you can order one there. Uh, If you want it uh, signed, I'll be happy to sign it for you. It's a first edition, uh, 200 pages, about 22 essays or chapters there, uh, mostly about coon hunting, some about bear hunting. But it's all about tree dogs, and I think you'll enjoy it. I also want, in the way of house cleaning, 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 it's easy for me to say, right? Uh, in uh, to say thank you to my friends out at DU Hunting Supply out in Washington State. They're way out there on the West Coast, but man, do they have great customer service. You know, it's. Uh, it's kind of like I tell people about falling to sleep. You know, I say I can turn the switch off and be asleep before the room gets dark. Well, when you order for D, from DU's hunting supply, it's almost that fast to the UPS man or FedEx or whatever's delivering your package to the door. These guys do a great job. Not only do they have virtually everything you need uh, for your hounds and for yourself uh, out there in the outdoors, They also have some of the best customer service, uh, and they do definitely service what they sell. So shout out to Buddy Woodbury and all the staff out at DU Supply. That's the housekeeping for the week. Pays the bills one more time. We're going to get right down to the reason uh, that we're here this week, and that's to talk to my good friend, Mark Dufresne from way up in the state of Maine. How are you doing, Mark? I'm doing good, Steve. Thanks for having me on. Well, I appreciate you sitting still there for all that windy introduction and (laughs) advertising and all that. But uh, uh, the funny thing about that is Buddy doesn't require me to do that, but I do it because he's good to me and I want to, you know, reciprocate a little bit there. I'll give Buddy a plug. I've bought all my stuff from Buddy for years now, and uh, I tell you, I don't think there's a better person when it comes to customer service on their product. That's what I hear from everybody. That's been my experience, and I know that those guys really do bend over backwards to to get to the problem. You know, they answer a lot of questions every day of guys calling in having issues with their electronics and so forth, but. Uh, well, that's great to know. Uh, a lot of houndsmen use DU hunting supply for sure. Mark, you are an interesting guy. 
I uh, first <laughs> I first ran into you at the American Plot Association Breed Days in uh, Greenville, Tennessee. I believe was our first meeting. Uh, if you remember, uh, otherwise uh, you can uh, shake my memory here. It didn't <laughs> take much. Yeah, you know, that was that was the first time we actually got to talk and and visit. I'd seen you around a little bit here and there, but uh, yeah, that was the first. Uh, First time we actually spoke, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it was great. And uh, some of the people there, you can't say enough about that gathering. Uh, Oh, tremendous, yeah. I mean, you don't have to be a plot guy, even. I mean, most of the people there are plot people, of course. And they come from all over the country, just like you being there from, from Maine and my dear friends Joe and Nancy Hudson were there at that first meeting uh, that we had. Uh, you know, they come from the UP of Michigan, and and they come from Florida, and they come from all over the country there. And uh, I would kind of liken that to an old uh, uh, rendezvous like the fur traders had back in the day, yeah, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What have been some of your observations about breed days? Just take us a little trip there, if you would. Yeah, so, you know, um, I started going to breed days back when they had the live bear bays, um, which obviously mm-hmm. stopped. And, uh, you know, the the event was kind of uh, kind of dropping off. And, and it was sad because it was such a great get-together. And uh, the American plot people... Um, the officers, you know, they worked pretty hard to come up with a solution and they moved the event, which caused some hard feelings with people. And, um, I think they found a wonderful spot there at a Christian camp. Uh, I agree. You know, you're, oh, you're sitting right under the, the mountain and people bear hunt right up there on the mountain, right behind there. You're hearing bear stories about, uh, different hunts right in the ledges that you're looking at. Um, you know, they're mm. right in the heart of the plot uh people it, you know if you look at and that's why they kind of chose that area was um just the memberships to the american plot association they just kind of drew a circle on the map and where the core of it was is obviously western north carolina's right there and eastern tennessee um virginia's a short distance away west virginia so it it did great uh, got a lot of people um i honestly generally don't even bring a dog down uh Right. Oftentimes, I may be dropping a puppy off to a friend, but it's a it's a social event. And in this day and age, sadly, you know, the internet's led to a lot of great things, but it's also led to um, uh, a loss of that social aspect in those gatherings and get-togethers. And that's one of the events that I look forward to all year, especially in March up here. We're in. Uh, you know, snow. Oftentimes I've driven through blizzards to get there and it's 80 degrees and sunny. Sometimes <laughs> it's rainy, but uh, oh, yeah. the people, the people make it for sure. Well, that's for sure. And, uh, you know, my dad went for several years and it's kind of interesting. Uh, I'll kind of interject a few little things here. Uh, you know, when the APA days, uh, the APA first uh, broke onto the scene, uh, it uh, the people that came there, there was kind of a, I, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, I guess, but there was kind of a hodgepodge of dogs, 
You yeah. know, I remember my dad's first trip to down to, I think it was Hickory Grove, one of those, uh, the location down there, I think they had for several years in South Carolina. Yep. And he came back and he said, well, I met, uh, saw some people and I enjoyed the conversations and all. And he said, but I'm not sure what kind of dogs they're promoting because most of them don't look like anything that I've ever called a plot dog. Uh, but you know, that has definitely changed over the years. And, and, uh, the people that are really more serious about big game hunting with plots have, have made, uh, APA breed days, their, uh, go-to event, you know, for the year. I'm sure you would agree with that. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned just briefly the days when the live bears were used. And, you know, I, when I was with the National Plot Hound Association, I was president in 79 and 80. And in 1979, I started what we called the National Plot Hound Association Bear Championship. We had Tom Telford's bear on a rope, live bear in the woods behind the Warwick County Coon Hunters in Boonville, Indiana. Oliver Smith's uh, Roland Smoke Dog won the first championship. It was the first year we had trophies for bear events with actual bears at the top rather than a dog tree and a coon. So, you know, I tell you all of that to say I was 100% in favor and supportive of the bear events and the bear bays and all of that that goes with it. However, the political climate changed. The last year, the two years after I went to, uh, or, or that I had that bear championship in Boonville, Indiana, we were scheduled to go to Flora, Illinois, and were met. Actually, I was a, a director by then. I had served my second term. And we were met by the townspeople and the local authorities, game authorities, and said, you can no longer have the live bear. And if you do, we're going to confiscate the bear and those responsible are going to jail. It was just that cut and dried. That was just the story. And uh, Tom Telford who is still living, thankfully. I understand his health is, is probably not as good as it could be. He said, people come a long way to do this. I'm going to do it. I, I, they come to, came to see the bear events. We're going to have them. We were able to talk him out of it because no one, had, no one wanted to see Tom go through that. And right. uh, so we had to back off on it. And then, you know, the APA, had the bear events and it was in a, um, a contained environment, but the anti-hunters got a hold of it. Of course, sneaked in with cameras, took some pictures, put together, you know, some fake news about it and began to spread it all around. And when that happened, you know, I was working for the American Kennel Club. The American Kennel Club came to the, uh, American Plot Association who was their parent club at that time, and said, you know, we have gone to our attorneys, we have gone to focus groups and everything else, and we cannot find a way to defend the live bear anymore. Now, I told you all of that, Mark, <laughs> to say that there were a lot of people who said Fielder was at a, uh, AKC, 
he could have stopped that. He could have changed that. He could have yeah. made that different. You know, he's the guy that that should have stood up and <laughs> if Sadly, those... there's no standing up to those people. Um, no. And as we're seeing, you know, it's just become worse and worse and worse. And, uh, yeah, you know, there's nothing one single individual could have done to, to prolong that anymore. It's just the way times are changing. And sadly that that's what happened. Well, you know, this is my podcast, so I took the opportunity to plead my side of the story. I don't blame you. And some people can rebut that if they want to. They're certainly entitled to. But that's the way it was. And then, you know, like you say, they moved the event to Greenville. I had a website. I'm doing too much talking. I'm going to cut curtail this here. But anyway, I had a website called uh, plotdogs.com. And uh, we had a plot reunion there in Greenville, Tennessee. And, man, we had plot people from all over. Collie came up from Louisiana. And Steve Hurd came out from Kansas. And, and uh, Gene White was still living, and he was there. And on and on. You know, we just had a great gathering there in Greenville. What a beautiful spot. And when I heard that APA was going to move their breed days there, I said, man, that, that's a good good decision for sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, it is a great gathering of plot people, and it's uh, in March. Is there a specific weekend in March that they have? Or Yeah, it's always um, starts on Thursday or Friday. Uh, it's usually around uh, March 17th, uh, whatever that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> excuse me, whatever that day right. falls on. Right. Well, there's. Uh, I think there's tent camping there, is there not? Uh, yes, there's tent camping, there's hookups for campers, there are a limited number of cabins and hotel rooms right. on site, yeah. and there's also very easy um, hotels access. That's one thing that I really like in Greenville is, uh, you know, the town's just up the road, 15 minutes, you got hotels, yeah. dining, lodging, exactly. everything you could need. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, well, that's enough about APA breed days, <laughs> I guess. We ran that rabbit down. We took that rabbit yeah, path did. and we caught that sucker. Okay, let's talk about Mark Dufresne here a little bit. Give me some background. Where, where'd where you come from and how'd you get here? Sure, sure. I'm not sure how many people are interested, but we'll oh, lay yeah. it out there. <laughs> so um, I was born in uh, western Massachusetts, which... Uh, is oddly enough, uh, I say the state of Massachusetts and everybody cringes, but uh, I can assure you where I grew up in the hill towns uh, was much like eastern Tennessee and western North Carolina. Uh, we grew tobacco, farm tobacco. That was a major crop. Uh, you know, we were just simple hill folks. Um, you know, the world kind of went on around us and, and obviously it eventually caught up to the place. I moved out of there. Uh, when I went to college, um, went to school for wildlife biology and, and traveled uh, the country working some different jobs, uh, enjoyed that, but uh, always done taxidermy. I guess I started that when I was about eight years old, and that was always kind of a fallback uh, job, so that's kept me busy, and uh, that's currently what I do. And uh, Up here, I, I do the taxidermy as well as guiding bear hunts, and um, gets me a chance to hunt a little bit more with the dogs and work on the breeding program. Well, as you mentioned that doing that, I've noticed that you've been, uh, especially lately work doing some work in, uh, 
on bear skulls. Yeah. You want to talk about yeah. that a little bit? Sure. I, you know, I do, uh, well, being in the business so long, you know, there's, you kind of learn that there's, there's weak points in the products at certain, certain areas. One of those is, um, I, this is my personal opinion is bears. There's, there's a lot of bear forms out there, but, uh, unfortunately some of those forms are not really what they should be. Um, and they're, they've gotten very expensive due to our building back better here in America. Everything's <laughs> 10 times more expensive than it used to be. So I got tired of paying a lot of money to try to fix stuff. And, um, as a result, uh, you know, I see a lot of these bears, I see them up close and personal through training season and especially the big bears, the look was never right on the big bears. So I, uh, I just set to sculpting one day, uh, a change out head that I could use. Some of the bodies, uh, the mannequins were all right, but the heads were really weak. So, uh, I set to work on a change out head that I could use in my shop here and sculpted it and, uh, and then molded it. And now I can pour those whenever, whenever I need them, I can manufacture one right here in the shop. Well, that's terrific. I saw a bobcat that you did. I, I kind of jumped back. I thought it was coming out of my screen, out of the screen, <laughs> right in my face. You can put you you put them back to life. <laughs> There's no question well, about it. that. You bet. Well, I think um, you mentioned the fact that you are uh, a wildlife biologist. Uh, you uh, are a main guide. Uh, you are taxidermist. You are a uh, breeder of uh, what I would consider. Uh, the upper crust, the plot dogs. Uh, I think the reason that I would uh, put you in that category, Mark, is is based on the degree of seriousness that you put in to your dogs and into the breeding and and all that. And I think that's a, a really good story for our listeners to talk about. Uh, you know how you got started in plot dogs. I, uh, you know, we all we get criticism on these podcasts because they say, "Well, we every guest that we have says they got started coon hunting with a two cell flashlight and a and a coal oil lantern." You know? <laughs> not me, not me. <laughs> so you know, and and the, the the typical question is, "How'd you get started?" You know, sure. uh, give me just a little Cliff Notes version of how you got involved in hounds first of all, yep. and then well, we'll progress to the plot dogs. Absolutely. So, um, my, uh, my introduction was farm life, I guess. And, uh, we were always my entire life uh, from my earliest memory. We were dog people. We hunted whatever you could hunt with dogs, whether it was rabbits or, uh, bobcats or bears or whatever. Uh, I was fortunate and I, I wished I'd have known at the time what I had, but we had a very good friend, Chip Sprague, who at the time was uh, working with Leroy Hogg of the Swampland Plot. They were very close friends and uh, Leroy would come out and hunt every year in Massachusetts and Vermont, New Hampshire. And uh, anyways, the first time I got to go is uh, I was sitting at the bar room waiting for the old man to finish his beer and Chip came in and it was a Friday afternoon. He said, you want to go bear hunting? And, uh, I don't even remember how old I would have been, maybe 10. Um, uh, <laughs> so I jumped at it. I thought this was the coolest thing I ever had seen. Uh, I had not bear hunted at that point, but, uh, 
we went up and I still remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, we went up to Vermont and uh, Steve Orkett was along and Craig Tanner and Chip. And anyways, we, uh, we had a great adventure. We caught a nice bear and uh, I remember climbing up the side of this mountain and we could look up through this gully and the dogs, I mean, the racket was just unbelievable. I'd never heard anything like it. It was like an amphitheater coming off the side of the mountain and, <laughs> and we're climbing, you know, hands and feet. I mean, you needed all fours there. And, uh, oh, yeah. all of a sudden we see Steve at the bottom of the tree and the bear starts coming down and the, the pistol was drawn and the shooting commenced. I mean, I was in the middle of a wild west scene. I thought it was the wildest <laughs> thing ever. And the next thing I know, there's a ball of black coming down the gully towards us and dogs, brindle dogs all over it, uh, rolled down by us and settled at the bottom. And I thought that was just about the greatest thing I'd ever seen in my life. And to this day, I think it was probably one of my best memories. Pretty hard uh, to beat. <laughs> pretty hard to beat so so honestly yeah. i was no coon hunter to start uh right i jumped right into the bear hunting world and honestly uh it was a lot of years before i realized people used anything other than a plot to uh bear hunt with <laughs> i didn't even know there was other bear dogs well you know down in the southern appalachians uh, pretty much where i grew up and uh, and all there was a lot of gray dogs and they would breed just about every color but Brindle. But my dad had done some reading in, way back when he was in service, uh, getting ready to ship out to the Pacific in World War II. He read about some plot dogs in North Carolina. So after he settled back in West Virginia, he set out to go find some, you know, and, and actually found his first registered plot right there at home. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, it was, and from that point on, it was all pretty much all plot dogs for me, but the experience where I hunted was most of the people did not hunt plot. They hunted, uh, these English type dogs. They came all colored, red bone, black and tan, Walker color, blue tick color, red tick color. Uh, like I say, just about everything, but Brindle, uh, yeah. but, uh, well, that, that's a, a great beginning. Um, so how did it progress from there? Well, um, unfortunately uh, for us in, in Western Massachusetts, uh, before we even knew it, one day we woke up and we had no more bear hunting. And, uh, you know, it, uh, it was a sad day. Uh, we didn't even really know what was coming. It was voted out and uh, the political scene had changed and the, you know, it, it just hit us. Nobody was organized. Uh, we didn't even know it was really coming. And everybody kind of had to sell off the bear dogs. And, you know, we still bird hunted and rabbit hunted, uh, coon hunted some, uh, did what we could. But the days of the bear hunting were, were pretty well numbered. You know, for a while, we'd still go up to Vermont or New Hampshire and hunt. And uh, some of the guys went to Maine. Uh, but it was... Uh, it was tougher, especially for me as a teenager. Um, so I really wasn't around the bear hunting for, for a spell. And then I got into college and whatnot. Um, and then I worked around the country, lived out in, uh, Oregon for a while and, um, got to assist on a few, uh, problem cougar catches mm -hmm. and, and some dogs. And of course that just, that was exciting. Um, you know, that sort of reignited a little and ended up, 
settling back home here and uh, made the mistake of going bear hunting with some friends again and and uh it was all over from there i had to have dogs and uh, you know i started with every conglomeration you can imagine whatever it was that i could afford i was trying it and uh sadly there there wasn't a lot that was working the the dogs of the the past that everybody had it was gone and at the time i'd been away from it so long that i didn't really know who to contact since then i know i could have got some swampland dogs but um the thing i remember most about those dogs was they tremendous noses um grit beyond belief i mean they it was they were great dogs and um you know i just wasn't seeing what i thought was great and, and i half wondered if in my mind i had kind of created a scene that wasn't true but i remember what those dogs used to do and everything i was seeing just you know quitting bears and uh just didn't want to be up there with a bear you know just all sorts of different things and it was frustrating so i just kept experimenting different breeds different color i tried about everything and uh and then i ended up with a little plot female that um i'd had several different lines and different dogs from around the country they still weren't really working and then i stumbled on one that she was the real deal and and uh i guess i ended up a bear hunter oh well i'm gonna rewind just a minute and i'm gonna get up on my podium here just for a second or two so many of the younger hunters today i think or the newer hunters don't realize how things have changed over the years bear are very plentiful most everywhere now yeah uh, you know black bear are in areas that that they haven't been seen probably since the turn of, of the 20th century, you know. Yep. Uh, and so it's fairly easy. Uh, I realize that uh, the, the the nemesis of the, of the hound hunter is ha not having a place to hunt, but with national forests and all that around the country, public lands, and all, uh, the, the bear hunter today kind of has an easier go at it than we did back when when i started and i imagine as you mentioned there in new england i think there's a danger of uh, the guys uh, that are enjoying the sport now and i do uh, appreciate the fact that they can enjoy uh, bear hunting i really do and i hope that they always will be able to but the biggest danger i see is apathy about how things can change just like they changed for you at, uh, you know, there in Massachusetts. And uh, are you getting a feedback on the line a little bit there? I apologize. I just cut it off. Okay, that's good. That's fine. Uh, but anyway, I think that we're kind of asleep at the wheel maybe um, right now. We're coasting yeah. along. Uh, things are pretty good. Um, you know, we got places to go. Uh, we got a lot of bear to run, and we can get into a whole conversation about bear dogs then and now, and it, were they better back then or are they better now, and all those things. But it just concerns me, uh, just from my standpoint of having lived through those years and seeing those things happen, like Oregon, uh, you know, losing uh, bear yes. and, and lion hunting. 
It's, it's a fragile state of affairs and people don't realize just, just how fragile and easily that can be lost. Right. Exactly. And I can't help but preach at that. And I don't know, you know, it's like the guy that taught me sales years ago before I went into the registry business. He said, Steve, it's just like throwing cow manure on the barn wall. The more you throw, the more will stick. So I'm going to keep throwing it. You know, I don't know how much of it's sticking, but, uh, you know, in a nutshell, guys, be aware, be aware of the rules, uh, the regulations, who makes them get to know those people, uh, be, uh, don't get caught. Like you guys were in Massachusetts. Yeah, we, we did, we got caught and, um, mm-hmm. you know, that was one of the first places, um, on the East coast, I think to lose it like that. And, uh, yeah, you got to get involved, get active. Um, you know, the, the biggest difference that I think I realize and have seen is I've always enjoyed the older generation. I've tried to learn from them, pay attention. Um, you can learn a lot. Well, the, the older generation had a vested interest in, in their hunting and their rights. And, and it was, it was more, it was a way of life. It wasn't just something to do. Um, you know, it was important to them. And, right. and a lot of the young fellas today, uh, and I'm not picking on anybody. I'll probably catch some flack for it, but I don't feel that they have the vested interest in it. They just, some, they go with somebody and they think it's fun and they get a few dogs and they, they don't really care what happens if they get in trouble with some landowners and whatnot. And before you know it, there's a, you know, there'll be a whole group that are working to shut off bear hunting because they're tired of it and the dogs and, um, people, people fostered relationships in the old days with landowners, you know, you knew everybody. And part of that is the influx, uh, since COVID, you know, this state's been overrun with New Yorkers and Massachusetts and mm. you name it. And, uh, the I know what changed. that's like Yeah, <laughs> here yeah. in Florida. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll just keep preaching it, Mark. And <laughs> hopefully if somebody listens, you know, when I hear you oh. Fellows say, well, I'm going to hunt no matter what. Nobody's ever going to stop me. That That's not a reasonable. No, when they come to take your house and your family and, and you can't feed your kids and they want to send you to jail, it'll stop. You know, oh, yeah. you won't be the outlaw that you think you are. That's for sure. All right. There's another rabbit we caught. Man, we made about a couple circles on that one. Uh, let's talk about, you said you got this female and things started turning around. What What was that like? Sure. So, um, you know, honestly, I, I didn't really understand breeding. Um, you know, I, I'd been exposed to some different genetic stuff, you know, in the wildlife field and, and I had a pretty good understanding of that, but I didn't know really much about proper breeding and bear dogs and line breeding, inbreeding, you name it. Um, so I was just getting this dog, getting that dog and, and trying them. And, uh, of course, uh, you know, stepping back in time a little, your, your site plot dogs online, um, you know, that was kind of a, a great thing to get some hunters together. And, uh, you know, it was before the Facebook and everything else. And, and mm-hmm. through that, you know, I just, I looked up these different bear hunters. And one thing about me is I've, I've never been afraid to ask questions. Uh, so I would just send messages to different people, ask them about their dogs. And, you know, I always kept coming back to the plot dogs just because uh, that was what I 
what I remembered. And uh, I just kept thinking, sooner or later, I'm going to get one of them. Um, I'd mm-hmm. met uh, Steve Hurd on there and, and heard about his dogs, and I just thought I would try one. So uh, he brought one down to me at breed days, um, and she was about four months old. And uh, oh, sorry about that. Um, she was about four months old. And I got her home here and I started to see what I had and I fooled around with everything under the sun. Uh, oh, it didn't matter whether it was squirrels or chipmunks or, uh, woodchucks or anything. I just, you know, I was, I was game to hunt anything. And, uh, so I had this woodchuck I trapped or a neighbor trapped one day and, you know, put it out in the field there and I let her see it a little bit and let it out and, uh, got under a log or actually a big rock is what it got under. And I'll tell you that little girl, she sat out there. I don't even remember if it was six, seven, eight hours. And she dug and she dug and she barked and carried on and, uh, got to the point where about nine o'clock at night, <laughs> I thought the rock was going to fall on her and kill her. She was so far under it and it was a pretty big rock. So I went out there and caught her and uh, I thought, well, that was interesting. She certainly had more drive than anything else I had tried. Um, you know, she was about 10 <laughs> months when bear season came in and showed her, uh, brought her into a bear in the tree. She was riding around in the truck, went with some friends. Um, she barked pretty good at it. Uh, it was just a few days later, we were hunting over there again in Vermont and the big dogs were cold trailing a bear up on the hill and kind of coming down towards a major highway. And, uh, we'd circled out to the, to the road to sort of watch if they came. And there was a high tension line that ran along there. And oddly enough, for some reason, I looked over my shoulder and felt like something was watching me. And it was a huge boar, 300 plus pounds, just stood up to mark the telephone pole. And he, <laughs> he wasn't 20 yards from us. And I said, wow, look at that. And, uh, you know, all the big dogs were out. The only thing we had in the truck was little Bryn, about 10 months old. So uh, Dan Dawkin was along on that hunt, and, and we ran over to the truck and grabbed her, and it run into the same side that the dogs were cold trailing on, but down at the bottom of the mountain. So we grabbed her. She never saw the bear, but uh, we got about 25 yards from where the bear went in, and, boy, she got on her hind legs, and that head went up, and she just went to roaring. And cut her <laughs> loose, and uh, away she went. I mean, it was on, barking every breath and just walking and baying. And luckily, the big dogs just heard all of that, and they came right off the mountain to her. They weren't that far away. And we had a pretty good uh, bear fight going for the day. Uh, mm-hmm. She ended up being the last one that we caught. She wasn't barking towards the end of it, but that was, you know, five or six hours later oh, or whatever it was. And, uh, and she was still following along though. So I liked what I saw and, um, you know, she just kept getting better and better as time went on. Um, you know, not a, I'd say if there was one weakness in her, I didn't know how nervy, how gritty she would be, but, um, she was doing a good job doing, making trees and seeing a lot of bears. She had some pretty good dogs to run with there with my friends and, uh, we just kept hunting her. And how old was she there when you put her on that big bear? She was 10 months old when she was on that bear. Mm. Yeah. And um, just got lucky it didn't turn around and thrash her. (laughs) Yeah. Well, (laughs) let's uh, rewind just a little bit. Now, she came from Steve Hurd. Yes. And what was she out of, Steve? So 
she, um, and, and as I talked with Steve Moore, uh, a name I kept hearing was Joe Hudson and the Shamrock Dogs. So, right. you know, me, I'm, uh, I looked up, I got a number for Joe Hudson and I gave him a call. And I'd say when I started talking with Joe was when things started to, I started to understand things a little more. So, uh, Bryn was actually off a dog that her mother was a dog that Joe had bred, Cindy. Mm-hmm. And that was off of Joe's Ellie dog mm-hmm. and his digger dog. So Ellie, mm-hmm. very, very nice dog. Yes. Um, she could rig, she could fight. I think you hunted with her I before. Did. She, I did, I yeah. did for sure. Yep, total, total package. And Digger, I think he was, I didn't ever get to hunt with him. Uh, he was uh, a pretty nervy dog. One thing I did learn about Joe's dogs is, you know, he used <laughs> to like the grit. And yep. um, always had good nose in him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he liked him to work a bear. So on the top side, uh, the father was Banjo. And Banjo was, oddly enough, out of Ellie on the bottom. So we were double-bred on Ellie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I liked that. And then uh, a butch dog that was uh, Steve Hurd's. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I just tried to learn more and more about the breeding. And as time went on and hunting her, um, I believe she was about two years old. And I'd been hunting here in Maine. Um, it was a, a place that came to earn the name of my dogs. I never had a kennel name early on. I just named them whatever if I registered them. And uh, I had to hunt this place that it's kind of hard with the bear leases here in Maine to find a place to hunt because the guides have stuff leased up and I wasn't a guide then. And uh, anyways, it was these big mountains where the Appalachian Trail comes through the Western Mountains up mm-hmm. in Andover. And uh, a lot of bears up there and nobody seemed to really want to go uh, into this one chain of mountains. So, uh, that's where I started my bear hunting career with that dog. And boy, they just, the bears stayed on the ground. They'd fight on the ground. It was, you just, you couldn't put enough good dogs there. Sometimes they would tree, but more or less they would stay on the ground and fight Mm -hmm. very thick, regenerated spruce and boulders and cliffs. And, um, pretty typical of the Appalachian range. If you look down at Eastern Tennessee, Western North Carolina, the same idea, big country, no roads, you know, you had to turn your dogs loose and go on foot behind them. Uh, and you know, she, uh, boy, I had three or four other dogs and she just excelled, you know, it didn't matter. She was never looking back for help. She treed more and more bear alone. Um, just was, was really coming into it. Nice. You know, had a few little setbacks here and there as a two-year-old call it the terrible twos if you will she wasn't treeing good once or or whatnot but but finished pretty strong um and as i came into later season i was hunting some cornfields over in the freiburg area it was some uh this one particular field the farmer was having a lot of trouble with bears and uh um so I'd been hunting that a little bit the tail end of training season. The corn came in, and I went back up there to Andover to hunt. Um, there was a big bear I had on a bait that I wanted to kill. Well, needless to say, we'd been baying it all day, and, boy, we could get in there, you know, 50 yards away, and it would break, 50 yards away and break. And as the day went on, the dogs dropped off, and there's old Bryn all by herself, still hammering, barking every <laughs> breath. And uh, it was getting late. I mean, this had gone on 
from daylight and it was now four thirty or so, which was just, I had about a half an hour of daylight yeah. left. And, uh, I said, by God, I'm going to try one more time to get up there and kill it. And I was about 150 yards from her and, uh, she was baying, had it stop baying real good in some big rock bluffs. And, uh, the barking stopped. I heard her get caught and she went squealing and that was it. And it was silence. Uh, kind of, kind of that crushing silence that you hear in that situation. And didn't know what I was going to find when I got there, but I, I hurried up and I found her there and she was just laying on her side. Um, uh, couldn't really get up, but wasn't any way I could really carry her off through those ledges and spruce thickets. So I sat there for a little bit and, uh, she finally got on her feet and we hobbled off the mountain and got home here. And, uh, you know, I was a young fella, didn't kids and whatnot. I didn't have a lot of money, so there wasn't really going to the vets. I mean, I looked her over and couldn't see anything major on the outside other than toenail holes and the usual stuff. So, mm-hmm. um, had to actually, I brought her in the house. She was a real good little dog, smart as a whip. Uh, I never house broke her or nothing like that, but she stayed in the house and never, never messed in the house or nothing. Uh, but she couldn't even walk there for about three days. I had to carry, we had like three steps going up onto my porch and I had to put a towel under her and kind of carry her outside. So she should go to the bathroom and I'd bring her back in and she was all swelled up and kind of jelly like and, uh, get that rice crispy skin all over. Her. So I just, uh, I just kept nursing her along and I said, well, I'm going hunting again. And I went over back to those cornfields try to kill one of the bears for the farmers and uh i had left something inside and i'd left my uh truck door open and i went inside and and Bryn had never showed any she hadn't even moved off the couch you know she's just laying there and anyways when i turned around and went back to the truck there she sat she'd managed to crawl up into the cab of the truck and uh Wow. I looked at her and I said, what are you doing? And it was the funniest thing ever. She looked away. She wouldn't look me in the eye. She looked out the passenger's <laughs> window. I said, get out of there. And she moved over a little to the passenger side. I said, well, I said, all right, you want to go that bad? I'll let you go for a ride. Never figuring I'd do anything with her other than she'd go for a ride. Uh, got to the cornfield and she'd hunted that in training season. So she knew where we were and uh, full of bears. And boy, she, uh, she jumped right over my lap, kind of fell on her face when she jumped out because she wasn't feeling real good, but into the corn she went. And, uh, actually I had to catch her because I hadn't even collared her. I kind of tackled her, threw a collar on and I said, well, if you want to go that bad, go. And I'll tell you, it wasn't five minutes and she was bathed solid right in the corn. And, uh, it come out of there. I cut a couple dogs in so they drove it out and they treat it. And I walked into the tree and she wasn't treeing much, but she was sitting there looking up and, uh, you could tell she was hurting, but, uh, we rolled the bear out and she had a little chew and off we went. And I said, man, <laughs> I said, that's a dog that's got heart right there. I, I was impressed to say the least. Cause she was, she was a mess. And, uh, you know, about a week later I was sitting there just patting her down on her dog. Elsa had her back outside and, I noticed I was checking her belly and stuff to make sure there was no hernia because she was, she got tore up pretty good and I didn't feel any hernia, but the odd thing was, is when I pushed up on her belly, right up on the top of her back on her pelvis, something would poke right straight up about three inches in the air. And I said, Oh, 
All right. So off to the vets we go the next day. And uh, he examined her and he said, well, he said she tore two major muscles off her pelvis. And he said, honestly, the fact that she's even mobile, let alone running, he was mystified. And he said, honestly, if we go in there and repair it, he said, it's going to cause more scar tissue than what she would have right now if it heals. So just let it go. And it, it healed on its own. And, uh, you know, we went into cat season that winter and I, I started really working her on bobcats. I had hunted her the first winter some, and of course this was her second winter. And, um, boy, she started, uh, catching cats pretty good. She was silent on cats is a, is a young dog. And when she opened, you knew she was looking at it. And, uh, she actually treated several cats that way because she'd sneak right up on them and pop them up. And, uh, you know, she just was trailing exceptional, um, 20 below zero, you know, she was jumping cats and I thought, boy, I'm liking this. Um, and we came into the third year, which would be our second real summer of hunting. And, uh, she just never looked back. Boy, she was, she started, she wasn't worth a, a damn as a rig dog when she was young. She'd just lay down in the truck. She wouldn't do anything. Well, into her third year she started striking bears like crazy and i'd put her up there and she just she looked like a natural and uh the other dogs i had couldn't even smell a track she was striking i'd throw her down and she was pretty tight-lipped on a real old track so she'd tend to get out there five six hundred yards before she'd really start opening and you know you just couldn't get anything with her because they didn't know and uh she just treat i don't know probably 20 bears by herself that year now, was uh, this most, in her second or third year? She would have been, uh, I think, she. so she was born in July, I believe, and that would have been her three-year-old year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she was born, uh, she was born July 18th, 2007 is when she was born. Describe her physically. So, um, nice, uh, tight-built dog, smaller dog, 45 pounds um nice brown dark brown brindle to almost a black faced um good ear length on her just nice kind of rounded head uh liked her build a lot good angles in her rear end and front end mm. you know uh good agility uh very fast little dog on track one of the things that i really liked about her was and and I I'll be honest with you like the cat hunting thing that was kind of new to me we'd cat hunted as a as a kid but I didn't know anything about it well she was kind of turning me into a cat hunter and uh, things I noticed about her was cats when they're jumped will tend to screw down and in bad conditions or bad snow they get the snow messed up and it's hard for that dog to keep the pressure on the cat to catch it and they'll just circle in a small area and then as the dog's searching on the backside they'll jump out of there and run well she would uh when that happened she would just go silent she wouldn't say a word and she'd circle out of course now we're coming into the gps's so you could see all of this right. and uh i could see her make a circle and boy she wouldn't say a word and then all of a sudden you'd see her just hit and line out straight again and every time she had the cat and i i was going right with her on foot so i was seeing all of this and uh Times when she, when the cats here when they're jumped they'll go to to water and ice uh, half frozen rivers they're pretty famous for that so I was hunting along this really bad um, dangerous river the Dead River and uh, this cat she'd jump it and it would run right to the river 
and curious enough, I noticed it right away, but it was, she'd hunted that spot a few times, and what she would do is she would just run down the bank of the river. She had amazing winding ability, and the cat would cross the river, and then he would run along the ice on the other side of the river, so instead of her trying to follow where the cat went, she was just running down the river 100 yards, and when she could smell that the cat peeled away, cat figured it was safe, she would cross the river, and then she'd get right on the track, screw him down again, he'd come right back to the river. So she did this a dozen or more times, and she was actually gaining on the cat, and it was really bad conditions, probably 15 to 20 below zero, windy, uh, mealy, icy snow. Um, just blew my mind, you know, and, and I did end up seeing the cat. We didn't catch it, but uh, I saw the cat, could have shot it. Um, thought that was pretty neat. So I like that. She had brains, very, very intelligent dog. Um, you know, no matter what you did, she, she could figure it out. And I coon hunted her, I cat hunted her, I bear hunted her. I, anything I could hunt, I hunted. And, and she seemed to know very rarely would she mess with a, you know, a coon in bear season once in a while. But, uh, you just seemed to kind of know, you know, what you, what you wanted of her, uh, and her ability on, like she didn't have anybody showing her how to trail or or any dog to trail with. She just had to do it on her own. And her ability to find the game when the track got tough, um, it just really made me take notice. You know, yeah. she could, just had an uncanny ability to to find where the game was and, and get it jumped on its feet. You know, when we talk about these exceptional dogs like that, the one thing that always seems to come into the conversation is intelligence, you know, uh, and, and that can be, uh, that can come to bear in so many different ways. You know, I always like to say that I like a pup that's intelligent enough to absorb the training that I'm trying to give him, you know, uh, just, uh, but the, the natural ability is, is, of course, always to me more important than something that I've tried to train in. But uh, the the cat stories are particularly fascinating to me. I've never been a bobcat hunter, although I have been on bobcat hunts. In fact, I uh, probably one of the last times I hunted bobcats was with Joe and Nancy Hudson up in uh, yep. in the snow up there in. Uh, outside of uh, Kearney, where they live. And uh, and one of the best books, and I might have mentioned it on a podcast before, it's called Tales of Old Traveler by a Florida cat hunter named B.S. Jones. I thought that was kind of an apropos name <laughs> for a houndsman. <laughs> sure. But he had this uh, foxhound, Walker foxhound, that was... Uh, by the time he wrote most of the stories about him, it, the dog was already old. But he had those kind of uncanny abilities, like you say Bryn had, uh, you know, to get up on the cat and be smart enough to know when the cat has moved out and, and all right. that. And, and as he wrote these stories, he would give the names of the locations. And I find myself now driving down the highways here in Florida and I see the names of some of these places that he mentioned. And I look and I see condos and housing developments and all that. And I think how great it must have been back in those <laughs> days. 
And actually, I probably could have met the guy when I was down here in Florida in college in the 60s when it was all orange groves and cattle ranches, you know. But uh, I love those cat stories. You and I mentioned a little bit about it, and I want to talk about this too, about your recent trip to West Virginia when we finished talking about Bryn. But uh, uh, one of the, the best plot dogs that of my experience was John Harris's Santana dog. And, and John hunted Santana quite a bit on cat. And yeah. In fact, yeah. he got uh, his testicles frozen or frostbitten. And he was sterile, wasn't he? He was. And when yeah. my dad wanted to breed this uh, Bronco's Fancy Julie female, uh, that was our best bear dog at the time, we couldn't breed to Santana because of that, so we bred to his son, a dog named Milton, and got some good dogs out of that cross. But anyway, let's get back to Brand. Did you breed her at all while you had her? So I did. Um, now, I was, I looking back at it, I was a fool for not breeding her sooner. Um, but, you know, I, I kind of went on a mission to try to learn as much as I could. I'd had. I don't want to say several, but I've tried a number of other Bluff Creek dogs, and and um, what I found was, you know, their their stick or grit was not quite what I needed here in Maine. Uh, some parts of the country it was perfect, but where I was hunting these bears, they preferred to stay on the ground, and um, I was struggling a little bit with the dogs not getting enough pressure on, so I was trying to learn much as I could about uh, grit and nerve and Joe's dogs. And, and I was traveling around the country, uh, hunting a little bit, tried to hunt with different dogs to actually see them instead of just taking somebody's word for it. And uh, I, that's where I actually met Joe Walker and Norman Walker down in West Virginia that were friends of John Harris's. And I hunted with John and I spent uh, several years down there hunting with those guys. Uh, tried different dogs, just experimenting. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to get the right dog to breed Bryn to, um, you know, I, as time went on, I, I was just, I was impressed with her ability. One thing about the cat hunting is it enables you, at least here in the North country, we're doing it on snow. So the way I hunted, I went with the dog, turned her loose and went right behind her. So you're seeing this stuff in the snow that the dog is trying to work through and times when you're scratching your head in a bear race you don't you wonder what's going on you you could actually see what was going on with the cat hunting and uh i believe it really turns them into exceptional trail dogs and when you're when you're right with your dog encouraging them a lot of dogs they may give up and come back and uh then mm-hmm. somebody just jumps in the truck and goes somewhere else well with the cat hunting you know you're right there with them so you're encouraging them and you're you're showing them what you want and the dog's excited that you're excited and and they tend to to work a little harder and they mm-hmm. they develop that ability to grub on a track right and, uh, you know there was this one and, and i'll mention this everybody will think i'm crazy probably but I, I mean i had a friend there that saw it and i i couldn't believe it i had this was uh happened in the course of a week it was in january so it was real cold here well we had january thaw and we'd had we hadn't had a lot of snow and we had a little three or four inch storm 
and uh, I went out and I found this cat track. It was about 45 degrees, actually, when I found it late in the afternoon. It was kind of melting out. And um, anyways, I I uh, put the dog on it, and it was going down into this river bottom. And as I uh, got down there, I I could see she was she was trailing. We'd had a little tiny skiff of snow the night before. And uh, anyways, what had happened was there was shell ice. The swamp had there was two rivers that came together, and it's sort of lowland. So the the water levels had come up with the melting, and then it had froze up again. Uh, and so we call it shell ice. And so there was a lot of ice suspended about two to three feet off the actual ground level on the bushes and trees. Mm-hmm. And, um, I got out there and I saw her trailing and, uh, I thought, goodness gracious. I said, this is, uh, you know, I, it took me a while to get across the first river and I got out there and I was falling through ice and luckily the water had gone out of most of the ground there. And, I get out to where she was and that little skiff of snow had had wind blown before this warm up. So what I'm getting at is conditions is everything with the track and it was warm enough that the scent was good. So I get out there and she's on top of the ice and it's it's pretty much just black ice clear and she nose right pressed to the ice and she'd trail around. She'd bark every now and then. So I I managed to get out there by her and uh, I couldn't believe I looked. She was very intent on doing what she was doing. She didn't mind me, didn't look at me, didn't come to me. So I, I started looking underneath the ice, and about two feet below her, some of that little bit of snow that we had had blown in in the wind in the cracks. And so there was a little skip of snow underneath, and that cat track was down <laughs> underneath. And my friend oh, Trevor man. was there. So she was trailing that on the ice. The track was about two feet below, but the scent conditions were optimal. And mm. we ended up took about two hours to get across that ice field, uh, about a half, a eh, quarter of a mile. And then she ended up running and treeing the, the cat. And unfortunately it treed about a hundred yards into New Hampshire behind the house and there's no cat <laughs> oh. in there. So I had to let it go. And it was a great big yeah. Tom. And, oh uh, man. Yeah. But I thought, goodness gracious. And yeah. so the second part of that story is I went back, that was a Monday. I went back on Friday. Now it turned off real cold after that froze up hard 20 below zero. And we had another warm up the end of the week. And I said, well, we I'll go no new snow or anything. But so I went and I see where I turned loose on that cat. I was hoping he would come back because he was hunting some deer in a deer yard on the main side. And it was a big Tom. So I found this this track and it, it didn't look real good, but I thought, my golly, that's him. It was a big old cat track. And uh, mm-hmm. I put Bryn down and, and Dan Liberty had a blue tip. Um, I don't know what her breeding was, but those two together, they worked and they grubbed and I was on the foot with them and they went up through the deer yard. I mean, that was 50, 60 deer, week old snow. I'd find the track every now and then they'd open here and there. Well, about a half a mile along, I called my friend Trevor on the radio and I said, Trevor, I said, you're going to think I'm nuts. But uh, I said, go sit on that cat track. We turned loose on Monday. And I said, this is the same cat track. And sure enough, those dogs trailed right to where we had run the cat Monday. It was five days later. Um, five again, days later. Five days. But what people have to remember there is it was conditions. It was warm when the track mm-hmm. was made. And the scent was frozen when it turned off cold and it never warmed up again until that day. So at noontime, it was just like a, a fairly decent track scent wise. Um, so I have to temper that with the truth of 
it was really because of the conditions but there's a lot of dogs that i don't think could have done that and uh and she was able to do that it's so pretty amazing story for sure what yeah do you recall a uh an individual bear hunt that you took with her that you know really stood out or anything in your mind or or you know uh the the one that really jumped out at me was when she was hurt um doing what she did and then mm-hmm. um when i finally did breed her i waited till she was i think she was five years old and i i finally had found a mate that i thought was suitable for what i wanted um and the great thing about this these plot dogs are the people it leads you to i i think and i might catch some slack for this but it, it's a hardcore bunch of hunters that that keep these plot dogs and anyways i right. threw a friend of a friend of a friend i ended up in east tennessee and i ended up at roy clark's doorstep to breed to harry joe uh, he was an old dog but if there was one thing he was known for it was was grit and absolute determination to finish a track and and get with the bear um so i bred her and again she was five years old and i had those pups they were born in july and our bear season our kill season opened in uh august no sorry the actual hound season opened september like ninth. so needless to say they were born in late july and she was about four weeks along with those pups and i i say i weaned her i didn't really wean her i just took her off the pups and i went hunting that day and Boy, that poor old girl, she had bags just hanging and dragging over the brush, but, you know, she hadn't done anything all year and um, took her out there and, and she just rolled out with this track and uh, we killed a beautiful, like, 500-pound boar. She was right there, never skipped a beat on it, you know. She just, she could do it whether she was um, in shape, out of shape, you know, it didn't seem to matter to her. How can we express to people who don't hunt with hounds? Maybe they they say they're hunters, but they think hound hunting is is not fair chase. All you got to do is cut loose a dog on a trail, and it's like shooting fish in a barrel. (laughs) How do do we um, explain, or maybe there's no uh, no explaining, but the how best we, way yeah. that I found to show that is to take them along in training <laughs> season and and actually let them see because nobody will believe you until they you know I took a lot of people that had never hound hunted that were kind of on the fence about it you know just in training season and uh, I took them to those same mountains and boy I'll tell you what I never had one of them at the end of the day say this is easy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Right. Two or three miles to a bear, you know, if you treat it or, or caught him off the bay, you never ran another one because you were mm. you were so tired by the time you got back to the truck. Um, dehydrated, you couldn't carry enough water in those mountains to, you know, so you dry oh, no. ears. Or, mm. You just, you were, you were spent. And um, people really earned a new respect for, for what those dogs do and, and what they uh what they have to do day in and day out on those bears. Well, that's true. And I know that the Michigan bear hunters, I was fortunate to serve on their board for several years when I was up there. And, uh, that was one of the tactics that we used, uh, when we had a pending bill 
or if bear hunting was uh, being threatened, or just maybe a newly elected uh, representative, senator, whatever, take him bear hunting. You know, let him yeah. see firsthand. And I think Clay Newcomb worked with the Michigan Bear Hunters Association. They did some video and so forth, uh, uh, some CDs. Uh, that, But at any rate, yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly, uh, Mark, that uh, there's nothing like seeing it firsthand. Right, and, uh, right. You it know, I grew up respect. Right. You know, I grew up as a kid in the home of a bear hunter in the southern Appalachians, in those rough mountains, in those days when you walked all day some days, and it was dark when you came off the mountain and someone would pick you up, hopefully, yeah, and take hopefully. you back to your vehicle. <laughs> you know, and I didn't think about that because that's all I knew, you know, about how physically uh, taxing it is. Yeah. Uh, and then as I get older and I go down to, uh, the blue Ridge and to the Smoky mountain region. And, and like you mentioned, East Tennessee and all that. And I look up at those mountains and they're steeper and taller that, than the ones we had back in, you know, West Virginia, our highest yeah. mountains are in the 4,000, uh, foot above sea level range theirs are in the 6,000 yeah but, exactly. uh, you know and i look at those and i think about the rugged ruggedness of those hunters and the determination and i read the stories of how they struck a bear over on uh raven fork or something over by cherokee and the dogs yeah. run all the way across smoky mountain they call it and yeah. then they go over into tennessee and they follow them, you know, right. on, on foot. foot. Yeah. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it really is. These dogs were chiseled out of granite <laughs> by some really tough, tough hunters. And, right. uh, and that's always amazed me in the story of the plot dog, uh, you know, the, the endurance factor. You know, how do you do that? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, that, that's what I mean. I mean, the, the, the plot breed is unique to me. I just, I find it interesting that such a hardcore, uh, group of hunters or personalities throughout history. If you, if you look, there's been some pretty colorful individuals that, that had plot dogs and hunted and they were always very hard going. I mean, you take some of those East Tennessee, Western North Carolina guys, uh, you know, they travel, they'd pick up, they'd, some of them had never really left home and they'd just pack up a truck and they'd go across the country to go run bears in Idaho or yeah. Washington. Um, you know, that's a pretty tough individual back in the day. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I love the old stories, the stories in the mountains, dearly love, uh, visiting uh with roy clark I, I, that was one of my disappointments this year at apa days i i was only there one day uh you know m my mother uh we knew that time was getting right. close and uh so i my brother and i ran down for one day uh and i didn't get to see roy i did get to visit with with several of my friends down there but uh but anyway uh what a great uh 
he just epitomizes the Southern Appalachian bear hunter to me. He does. And, and, you know, there's in all fairness to the bear hunters down there, there's probably hundreds that are just like him. He just happens mm-hmm. to be the one that I know that I stumbled on yeah. through dumb luck in, um, yeah. and he's willing to talk to you and, and mm-hmm. teach you. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And boy, he's, he's taught me a lot for sure. Um, I, I wouldn't yeah. be where I am now. I mean, that was, you know, I crossed Bryn onto his Harry Joe dog and, um, you know, only had a few pups out of it, but, uh, boy, it put me in the bear hunting business. Uh, yeah, yeah. you know, and it, it was, uh, it was fun. I, I'd done a lot of research at that point and tried to learn more about line breeding and, and why the, why Bryn was like she was and what she went back to. And, um, you know, as I learned more, uh, about Harry Joe is actually Roy, oddly enough, had really liked when Charles Gant got started in dog breeding, um, Roy and his daddy, Hewell helped him, uh, hunt the dogs and Charles mm-hmm. would give him dogs and whatnot. And anyways, uh, there was a particular dog that, uh, Hewell had gone to Ohio with, uh, Charles to pick up and that became gant's night ghost and so gant's night ghost came out of uh you know you, you had a a pretty good combination of dogs in there greens were off in black river flirt so you're going back to joey boy and greens daisy may and <laughs> john burnett's bell well oddly enough what i learned was uh you know there's some particular dogs that were in a lot of bear dogs when I traced them back. Um, and obviously it, when the plots were originally registered, there was a lot of Ferguson bred dogs. Oh yeah. So that always got my attention, but Smithfield's fly, North Carolina, Tom and nickel stormy were, were three dogs that basically coming out of one cross of Smithfield Smokey and Smithfield's cubby. And, yeah. uh, boy, I saw those dogs in, everybody's bear dogs that I hunted with, like they seem to be in there. Now this is way, way back, but if somebody's line bred and, and carefully selected and, and worked on those dogs, it, I think it still has a bearing today on their abilities, um, and traits and, you know, Joe Hudson's the shamrock dogs. Um, if you go back through those, you know, you're going to have the butch and Jill cross. He used bandit a lot. Yep. Um, the doc dog, you know, Ursus mm-hmm. Rowdy's in there. Um, huh, I mean, it's, it's the same mm-hmm. dogs. They go back to the same Smokey and Cubby cross, the Burnett dogs. Joe always said he tried to get as much of that breeding as he could back in the day. Um, just, a, I was seeing things mesh, you know, Murphy Smokey again, Butch and Jill dogs, the Weems mm-hmm. dogs, uh, Paulson's dogs, Dennis Paulson's dogs and, and the crosses that he bred around. Uh, there was similarities in all of these different dogs. And, and so when I made that cross, it just, it seemed to click pretty well. And, um, you know, if it wasn't for Roy and Ira Jones, I, I would have never, never been able to make that cross. And, uh, it kind of really set me up for bear hunting. Well, you certainly have a firm foundation in those dogs, and, uh, you know, you, we can't see each other right now as we're talking, but I'm kind of smiling ear to ear when you start talking about those Smithfield dogs and and those <laughs> dogs back there because, you know, that's kind of what 
I cut my teeth on, you know, that cross of Smith deals John to fly and, yep. uh, and down through the, they go and remembering, uh, you know, those, uh, amazing dogs, North Carolina, Tom, and, and, oh, uh, just, uh, the, look mean, at those dogs. I mean, they were beautiful hounds. Stormy was one of the prettiest uh, dogs I've ever seen a picture. Probably there are two plots that I think had a pretty near perfect plot head. One of them was, of course, Nickel Stormy. He was a little houndier. In fact, my dad liked the little houndier look on his plots. He now I'm not going to say he went for the Brandenburger Drum more bloodhound looking plot. That wasn't it. But he always said, I like a hound, Steve. I like yep. a, my dogs to look like a hound. Another dog that absolutely had a beautiful head, I thought, and looked like it had been chiseled out of a piece of hickory, was Cascade Big Timber. I yep. always thought he had a beautiful head on him, a typical plot head, the high set ear, uh, you know, the, the blocky muzzle, the gray, all of that. But, you know, for... I knew, and we mentioned this before uh, when we talked about doing this podcast, that we'd probably nerd out here on a lot of this pedigree <laughs> stuff. But oh, if you yeah. love the breed and you've been around it for a number of years, and I know that I'm older than you, Mark, but I don't, I probably don't have as much experience with the breed no, as you, you do because do. don't sell yourself short. Because you've been, well, I know, but you've been a, a, a student that did the research you know and uh, but i just you know we all want to look back to the old days and wish we could bring them back you know and if i could be go out there and go hunting with you boys today and unsnap bear pin sam you know or maybe uh bear pin fancy or maybe julie i i'd feel good you know i'd feel good that i was contributing to the hunt because, uh, you know, those were, for me, outstanding dogs. And I know that Bryn was that uh, that kind of dog for you. Uh, let's, uh, you and I have been at it about a, <laughs> almost an hour and 20 minutes. Let's talk a little bit more about Bryn, how she came along, and, and what ultimately happened with her. Sure, sure. So, um, you know, I just kept hunting Bryn, and... Uh, uh, boy, this, you know, I wished I hadn't waited so long to, uh, to breed her. One thing Joe Hudson told me that I've never forgot is, uh, you know, there was, uh, he's never been upset about a cross that he made, but there was some that he never did make that he sure wishes he could. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that sticks in my head because I only was able to breed Bryn three times. Uh, first time she had five pups and the second time she had three pups. And the last time I had an emergency C-section and one survived and their uterus wouldn't contract. Uh, she'd been so beat up by bears that um, that was the end of it for her and I had her fixed. And so there was only nine puppies total in her life. But um, basically everything that I have here now will go, will go back to her uh, one way or another. And I've tried to kind of work through those crosses, but. But Bryn was, uh, even after she was fixed, that was at about eight years old, and uh, she was still, her longevity was impressive. Um, just a great game-catching dog. Uh, cats and bears, she could change over. 
no problem. Um, hunted her, I think, eight different states. Uh, you got to see lions in Utah and up and down the East Coast and the Great Lakes. Um, you know, she hunted a lot of different places, caught game everywhere. Um, you know, as a, as a, I think she must've been around eight years old. Um, I'll just tell this story. I'll try to keep it short, but she, uh, she had a big heart, you know, and, and as she got older, she started to get wrecked a lot more by bears, uh, unfortunately. And anyways, we went into training season and boy, we got on, uh, just rigged a bear, had no idea what it was, turned loose. Well, it put, uh, five dogs, couple of them ended their season, tore her up. Uh, about nine days later when she'd healed up, I turned loose again on a different road system. I think it was the same bear. It just, the same thing. Ended some more dog seasons. I was running out of dogs. I ran her nine times in training season, and every time she just, the bears were on the ground and she just got wrecked. Uh, towards the end of bear season, the training season for bear, I could tell that her heart just wasn't in it like it always was and boy mm. i was i was tore up i was i was thinking i finally found the chink in her armor and um i called roy clark about it and asked him and um he said oh he says she's a smart old dog he says she's too old to give it up and uh what had happened on one of my last hunts was i knew she struck and trailed and jumped this bear and it was on the ground and she just quit it and came out. And I, I was just like, I couldn't avoid the truth. I mean, that's what it was. We turned some dogs loose in there and we got every dog we had wrecked on. It was about 130 pounds sow. And she just kind of followed along it, but she was, she was pretty well done. Well, we have a, about a two week layoff period between hunting season and training season. And I talked to Roy again. He says, just get her on some bear kill. She'll be right back to where she was. And I, I had my doubts, but, uh, if there's one person I trusted for being able to, to get the most out of a dog, it was Roy. And hmm. sure enough, opening day, uh, you know, comes and I, I turn loose and, uh, oh, wouldn't you know it? One reason or another, she ended up alone on a 230 pound sow, old dry sow, just baying hmm. out in this big bog. And I'm, I'm a nervous wreck, just hoping she'll hang in there and I can get her some help and, and get a bear killed to her. And, uh, it went on for a couple hours and, and we were up on this. The only place we could hear him was this gravel pit on the edge of this hogback. Was and, this uh, in was, Maine? This was in Maine. Okay. Yeah. And, right. uh, it was a big gravel pile and we were standing way up. I'd, I'd led five dogs up there on top of that. And it was the only place we could hear it. Well, she got within about 200 yards of us and they could hear and I turned them loose and they went in with her and um it was a pretty good bear fight after that and uh it still took about two more hours and we got the bear killed and she was right there and you know from then that point on she never looked back uh you kind of felt ashamed of yourself for doubting her didn't you oh I I did and (laughs) (laughs) I can think back to times I hunted with people and they told me shock that dog it's running a moose and and uh i remember shocking her one time and and then their dogs came out right where she did and they said oh it must be a bear and i let her go again and mm. she got out in front and uh lo we went to another road and this bull moose almost runs over the top of the truck and they said oh you better shock your dog i said i ain't shocking that dog ever again and uh <laughs> sure enough she come up within about 10 yards of the road and turned back behind us and wasn't a little while later we see the bear go across the road 
So uh, I never shocked her again on anything. Uh, she well, was as honest as the day is long. I think hunters, uh, when you hunt in a party of bear hunters, or I imagine coon hunting or anything else, they're always pretty quick to pass judgment on someone else's dog. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, you know, and kind of overlook all, yeah, uh, their own, and that sometimes can have bad uh, consequences. I remember one time losing a really nice young dog. That this guy that was in our party in, back in West Virginia, and I was in Michigan. My dad was hunting, and the dogs crossed, and the guy said, "Oh, those dogs are wrong. We're gonna catch them off. You know, they're going the wrong way." Yada yada. Well, they weren't going the wrong way, but they did catch the dogs off. And this guy just snapped my dog up to an open pickup bed, uh, to the the strap, you know, even yeah. open tailgate, yeah. and takes off up the mountain. And it's rough. Uh, I mean, you know, and yeah. when he got to the top of the mountain, the dog had been hung and drugged. No telling yeah. how far, you know, which is not the the side of hound hunting that you like to talk about, but Sometimes yeah. we need to be a little more uh, be aware of yeah. things. You know, I hunted yeah. a lot of places with a lot of people, and unfortunately, I had to I had to learn some hard lessons on a few. Uh, I'm very careful now with with who I put down with and mm. where, and if I know the dogs or not, because it's just so many bad things can happen to a good dog and cut their life short. Well, you bring up a point there, Mark, and I get this because I still have quite a few young hunters that contact me with various questions about their dogs training. Most of it is coon hunting related, but it could be other things too. And they say, well, I moved in this area, you know, and, and nobody wants, I can't find anybody to hunt with. I can't, you know, I, I you know, I, I just, I want to hunt with these guys. I want to, but, but. They don't seem to be friendly. They don't seem to want. Well, there's another side to that issue, and I think you you touched on it there. I don't think sometimes it's all about them not being friendly or maybe not welcoming, but they certainly, you know, somebody with green dogs or dogs that that party doesn't know anything about, they don't know their temperaments, which is very important with bear dogs. Absolutely. They, yeah, they don't know about whether this dog can be trusted, you know, in terms of running off game and all of that. So it's not all about that they're just trying to be, uh, you know, snobs. It's just being careful. They are being careful in a lot of cases. So my advice to these guys is, you know, get to know these guys. Go where the bear hunters hang out. Sit around in the in the fringes of the circle and listen and and all you know and don't assert yourself as being the be all end all for bear hunting i i ran into a kid in a parking lot back in west virginia one day and oh man i mean he was about 20 years old i'd say and you could tell that he hadn't been bear hunting very long he had a truck full of walker dogs and and there's no i'm not trying to no i hear you yeah but man this guy knew everything there was possibly to know about bear hunting and he was real anxious to tell me all about it you know and i listened to him for quite a long time and i said well son when you uh, notch about 50 years 
<laughs> on your calendar. Come back and, and tell me how much you know about bear hunting then compared to what you know now. But, yeah. you know, I, and that's a temptation for us older guys to kind of say, hey, guys, you don't know anything. But we got to be patient with them. And we, and we got to hopefully they'll take, you know, like that pup I said was intelligent enough to uh, absorb the training that we try to give them. Hopefully they'll be intelligent enough to listen to these older hunters. Right. right. Yeah. 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 Well, so what, um, what ultimately happened with Brent? So, um, you know, she, um, she's just getting old, you know, and, and she lived to be an old dog, uh, as, uh, as about, uh, I'm trying to remember if it was 11 or 12. Um, she had this tumor in her neck that I could tell was, was a lump there, whether it was a thyroid tumor or something. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm sorry, not a thyroid, but, um, uh, I'm drawing a blank on what it was called, but it got bigger anyways, was what mm-hmm. was happening. And a, I, a lymph I node or something. Yes. Yeah, a lymph node. Exactly. And, uh, you know, it, I didn't figure it was really cancerous because it was there a long time. Um, but it started getting bigger and actually she got an infection in the neck and boy, I had her on a pile of antibiotics and, you know, I'd get her feeling better and she'd go hunting and run herself down and it'd come back. And, and that was a sort of a ongoing process there for quite a while. And that was through training season and kind of had a handle on it. Well, I said, I'm going to, I'm going to run her till she don't want to run anymore. And, um, you know, secretly as a bear hunter, the worst thing for a bear hunter, I think is to watch your, your good dog get old. And, mm. uh, when they get outrun by their kids and, and yeah. they still got the heart, you know, and, and she'd do goofy things. She'd get mad when they all caught up to her. She'd just go find her own bear. I'd find her hours later bait up on one, you know, she, <laughs> they ran by her. She said, I'll go find one. That's my speed. Um, <laughs> you know, she was yeah. famous for that, but, yeah. but that, that infection, um, kind of came back and came back. And then it was, she was just getting old, you know, and towards the end of it, um, I guess it would have been her 13th summer. I took her rigging just to rig pretty much. She still loved to go. And, uh, you know, just, I think that tumor had dragged her down so much. And actually what I, what I started to notice is there was a tumor inside her belly. Like she had a very large bulge on one side. Um, and there wasn't much the vets could do, you know, I had brought her in and they checked the one in her neck and they said, well, if we removed it, it's blood and gorge, all the nerves are there that control breathing, everything else. Uh, I said, well, we'll just ride it out till she can't. And, uh, you know, it, um, it just got to a point where it was really dragging her down and just riding the rig in the, in July, you know, wasn't even particularly hot, but I think she almost heat stroked on me. Mm. and. I just never dared take her that last summer after that and fall. She, a couple times she wanted to go, but you know, I just, you didn't want to leave her in the truck if it was hot or, or whatever. Um, and ended up, uh, late that fall, you know, she's still a couple of times there, you know, I, I let her go before that and she would still go out and jump bears, but she didn't have her speed and, and stamina was gone. And, and then when that finally hit, uh, 
you know, it was coming into November and she was 13 and a half years old and mm-hmm. or just shot a 13 and a half. And, and I finally had to put her down. She looked yeah. like a skeleton. She, you know, I was cooking hamburger and rice and every, everything trying to keep mm-hmm. the old girl going. And she yeah. lived inside with me for a good year now, two years or something. And, uh, yeah. uh, just, wasn't anymore had to face the facts and uh, had to put her down well i think that is the hardest part about being a houndsman is uh you know these dogs just don't live long enough you know no and uh, you know and and they don't give up those good dogs mm, like you know i mean at the vets i had the vet tell me like this this dog shouldn't even be here (laughs) she Mm. she just didn't know how to give up um, right. You know, and right, right to the bitter end, she was still doing her thing, trying to do her thing. She'd roll around the yard. Sometimes she'd act a little puppyish, but you know, I just didn't dare get her into sure. a run because she she would run until she oh absolutely she couldn't go. And yeah. you know, I I had hoped for a while. You know, as as all houndsmen do with that old hound, I think you know I'd hoped she would get killed by a bear because uh, I didn't want to have to do it. But mm. that's the way it works. Well, yeah, to do to die doing something that they love is is I think what every houndsman wishes, you know, for those good dogs. Right. Well, what about in the reproductive uh, side of things? How did she produce for you? Yeah, so um, boy, I you know I was lucky. Call it luck. I had done an awful lot of reading and studying on genetics and, um, you know, from horse breeding, the King Ranch quarter horses, the dog genetics to, I, I guess I've tried to dive pretty deep down the rabbit hole. And, um, and I, I think I was pretty lucky cause I have a son of hers, uh, Reaper, who's actually coming 10 years old right now that I thought a lot about this. And I, I, I believe it's a fair statement that he is, is good or maybe a little better than she ever was a little different dog than her um i cat hunted him his first year and unfortunately he froze a testicle and i knew i was going to want to breed him so i never dared cat hunt him again he just same as her he didn't know when to stop and uh, you know so i um i just bear hunted him and the dog has just been as tough as nails so Hmm. through that first cross with Roy Clark's dog there was a few litter mates and I have worked uncle niece crosses cousin I'm on the cousin crosses mm-hmm. uh, I did a grandfather granddaughter cross mm-hmm. just recently with reaper um I've been pretty lucky and I, and they've kept me you know they're not perfect but uh I'm pretty happy with them I'm always I'm always trying to tweak it and add a little bit more mouth on the coal trail. That's a weakness I think they have in my dogs, but grit and speed is good and they're, they're intelligent, personable dogs. So now he, was Reaper out of that cross with Roy? Yes, dog? it was. Yeah. So uh-huh. there was, there was Reaper, Bondo, Grimm and Maine and Roy, there was only the one female and Roy asked for her. So I gave her to Roy and she made a, every one of them made, I guess if you had to say it was a hundred percent cross on the ones that awesome. there was six born and four lived to hunting age. And, uh, out of those four, they're, they're bear dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, you know, I, I was pretty excited by that and I've used them pretty tightly kind of breeding around them, different crosses and whatnot. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I learned early on, uh, you know, I guess after I came home from the military and, 
I was in a sales career for about 10 years, and then I got involved with the registries and went to UKC, and I started doing a lot of reading and thinking about breeding, you know, and I got on to a lot of um, good material that helped me to understand this family breeding. I, I won't say I understand it. In terms a better of grasp a, on it. A better grasp is a good, is a good word or a good yeah. term. And so, you know, I, I just believed that from early on, and that's kind of what we looked for, and that's what we did with our dogs. And there's a podcast called, you know, The Story of the Bear Pen Plots that I, I did here on the Gone to the Dogs podcast that just kind of laid out that whole history of the line that we had. But there was a lot of that type of breeding, yeah. uh, especially uncle-niece crosses, aunt-to-nephew crosses, Half yep. brother to half sister. Uh, Mike yep. Colley and I did one of those one time. It turned out very well. Uh, so I firmly believe in that. And I always say, just in simple terms, layman's terms, is that, you know, if you want to continue what you got, you're going to have to kind of do that. And and you you know that you're going to uh, intensify the good as, as well as the bad. But yep. it's going to produce a lot more uniformity in your line of dogs, I believe. Uh, Absolutely. And Absolutely. predictability. Very, and, very predictable results yeah. uh, in the offspring now. Yeah. You know, the type of mouth they'll have, the kind of way they work a track, how do they drift a track or do they straddle a track or, you know, the tree dog. To me, the question of tree dog shouldn't even enter into the conversation with plot dogs. Because from my earliest toddler days, I knew that plots treed and the right. puppies would tree before they do anything else. But now I'm not so sure that's uh, universal in the block, in the plot breed right now. Uh, yep. Some of them are better tree dogs than others. And I think that's all a part of environment, probably more than anything else. Um, you know, but. Uh, a locating tree dog was always important to me because I'm also a coon hunter and I love coon right. hunting, you know, but that's a discussion for another day, uh, <laughs> Mark. And uh, we've, uh, we've logged almost 104, uh, or an hour and 40 minutes now. <laughs> it's been a long one, and right? I think I've taken a, we're a full a, of hot air, Steve. Oh, we are uh, for sure. And Ella would be the first to agree with you with that statement. <laughs> But uh, how she says, how do you guys find so much to talk about with dogs? I mean, well, we didn't even get into half of what we could have talked uh, about. And we're going to have to come back and do that. Would you agree to do that? Oh, sure. Sure. I yeah. like the, the breeding side of it. I think there's a need for more information on that, more knowledge to, to make better dogs. Um, you know, that's, that's a need I think we have. And, uh, a lot of people are getting a little bit more understanding on it, but there's still a, a lot of unknowns and wide mm -hmm. tales and oh yeah um, things they haven't seen. So that's always always a good one to talk on. Well, the thing that I have to guard against is I have actually in my I could learn volumes from my dad because he was never this guy to think that I know everything about breeding dogs. Man, I well, don't. I haven't scratched the surface. No, and uh, even you if know, you've done it for 40 or 50 years, you'll right. still only be scratching the surface. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. What was 
Brynn's greatest contribution to you or to your experience with her in those 13 and a half years? Sure. So two things I would say. Uh, number one is she taught me how to hunt. Like, I mean, really how to make a trail dog. Um, I learned a lot from that dog on trailing and, and her, her ability to trail and grub and, uh, you know, there was hardly ever a bobcat that she didn't jump, whether, whether it was terrible conditions, 20 below zero, hot melting. Um, she taught me about conditions and trailing. And the other thing would be her offspring. Uh, you know, basically she's kept me in the bear hunting business, even though she's gone. Um, you know, she's really, really reproduced for, for the few pups that were out of her. Um, she's reproduced very well, uh, with those few. Well, she was a great one for sure. And I only wish that I'd been able to hunt with her. And of course, uh, hearing you lay out her background, a lot of, a lot of guys, a lot of dogs that, you know, are familiar to me, although I may not have hunted with them all, but I certainly was able to hunt with some. Now, I hate to end this podcast on this note, but I want to do it in terms of a tribute. You made a recent trip to West Virginia. Yes. An unexpected trip. Tell tell me a little bit about that. Sure. So, uh, sadly, uh, about a week ago, Mike Colley called me at uh, about 6 o'clock in the evening, and a dear friend of ours, we talked about him here a little bit. Joe Walker passed away suddenly of a heart attack and I made a trip down to the funeral to the West Virginia mountains in Hillsboro and witnessed probably one of the most amazing scenes that I've ever seen. Uh, the outpouring, the respect from the, just the, the townspeople and the people around was amazing. Uh, very well attended funeral, but a good man and we had to say goodbye to him yeah well i know it's tough and uh i had some very enjoyable conversations with joe down through the years and uh was shocked as everyone else was i i know to hear of his passing he loved the plot dog he loved his community he loved his family um I tried to use him to get to his dad and to John Harris, who we've mentioned here, and John and my dad hunted together for several years to get the stories of some of those dogs because John Harris's start in dogs came from Norman Walker, Joe's dad, and yeah. uh, and the old Jake dog, Mongahela Jake, and, and produced the great Santana dog uh, that, was my personal best bear dog that I ever hunted with. (laughs) Tremendous amount of of knowledge there. Maybe we can wrangle Norman and John sometime. Uh, I doubt we'll ever get them there. They're cut from a different cloth, the old mountain cloth. uh, I wish we sorely could because the world could learn uh, a few things about honesty Uh, and dogs from those folks. When I uh, was with Houndsman XP Podcast, I, I used to, uh, a term that uh, John Harris had said uh, one day when they were trying to start a sheep killing bear. And I'm sure Norman was probably there. Uh, and they 
some question about John's dog going one way and the other dogs taking the track the other way. And John said, well, boys, you follow your hounds and I'll follow mine. And uh, <laughs> that always stuck with me as a houndsman's creed, you know. Uh, yeah. But, uh, well, we certainly do send our thoughts and prayers out to Joe's family and to Norman and and that, that entire group uh, of wonderful people there in my home state of West Virginia. And we just certainly uh, wish them the best as they try to go on just like Joe would have wanted them to, to right. do. Well, Mark, it's been absolutely a blast to have you on the podcast today. Uh, I do hope that we can get together again soon and talk some more about these these plot dogs that we love and and man, like I say, you, you wear a lot of hats. We could talk about a lot of different subjects <laughs> with you. And, uh, I just wish you the very best. Uh, you have any other, uh, uh, travel plans for this summer? Uh, Oh, uh, well, there's going to be a, I'm thinking come October, we're going to do a little memorial hunt for Joe. And oh, so I'm that's probably awesome. heading back to, yeah, I'm probably going to head down to, uh, Hillsborough and, have a little hunt with Norman and Hammer and all the boys. That sounds great. Um, God's country for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Beautiful place. Well, once again, Mark, thanks for coming on. It's been a great visit with you. I wish you the be very best with your hounds going forward. And friends out there in podcast land, if anybody asks you where I am, you can, with assurance, tell them he's gone to the dogs. Under the dog. That's it. Fred Moran, the Redbone Man, is in the house again today. How are you, Fred? Oh, pretty good. I got to go to the doctor's today. He'll tell me at 1130 whether how good I am. I but see. I feel okay. Just, just, it's like a car engine, a lot of miles on, getting wore out. <laughs> well, I understand that, and I had some conversations here uh, just within the uh, last couple of days. Uh, well, for the podcast and uh, talking about that and how you know, My, as we get older, uh, we still have the desire to go, and we can go, but we have to go under our terms and on our in our speed. You know, that's for darn sure. I tell you what. Saturday night, uh, Patty and I went, and I never know. I've hunted this woods 10,000 times, and he'll get steeper all the time. Mm. Um, I, I told her, and this is the truth, I shouldn't say this because it looked like I am getting older than what I am. Uh, You're only 85, Fred. Yeah, I'm 85. That's all. That's all. That's not bad. Uh but anyhow, we climbed the hill. We finally found the coon. He was in all thick stuff there. And I, she's determined to find every coon. Me, I could care less. I feel they're all there unless it's a bare tree. But uh, anyhow, we found the coon. And I hunted hard the night before. Uh, and we treated, I think, four on Friday. I hunted with some other person. And I was still beat from that. But Saturday, I said, I don't know about, we had a dog get heat stroke last year. It was her dog had died from it. Mm. 
and let it treat too long. Let it treat too long. And um, anyhow, uh, I said, hey, it's getting hot here. I said, I'm ready to go. She says, I so I said, I don't know about you, but I'm too beat from last night. I said, if we see a coon cross the road on a way out of here, we're going to turn loose on. Otherwise, uh, I'm going home. I said, I'm just, I need some sleep for a change. I wish they <laughs> sold that in shots or something, or you could give yourself a shot in the arm and get six hours sleep. But yeah. they don't. And, um, Anyhow, uh, so we went home after that. She says she was wore out too, but more or less didn't want to admit it. So, oh, yeah. uh, and I didn't go last night. I says, too darn hot. It was 90 here, and that's hot for us. And, uh, it, oh, and I yeah. got up, I laid in the bed, watched TV. I got up around 9.30. I went outside. It seemed a little cooler. I thought I should go, but then I w- changed my mind, went to bed, looked better. Listen to this. My kid, we got a creek goes right through my boy's yard, and they put fish in it every time they go fishing. They came home uh, from fishing, him and my grandson and uh, granddaughter and so forth. They had over 50 fish in a real well. Uh, or the, not real well. Uh, the uh, live well, yeah. Yeah, live well. And uh, we put them in that creek, and that I got a snapping turtle I caught two years ago, and he's still in there. He's a big one. He's getting <laughs> bigger all the time. And yeah. I said, he'll have plenty to eat. Well, most of them were little bluegills and a few crappies and so forth. Well, it's yeah. daytime when they came home around, oh, six, seven o'clock. And I'm watching, I'm watching to see if that turtle comes up for them fishing already. But sometimes he comes right up, sometimes he don't. I, I spot something coming up the creek. Now, mind you, it's two hours before dark. Here comes a coon up the creek. He's going from one bank to the other bank looking for something to eat, I imagine. Mm. He spotted me. He, he came clear up to within 10 yards of me. And he spotted me, and I thought he was going to take a, a, a run and t- run back down the creek. But I just stood perfectly still. He couldn't figure out what I was for sure. But finally, it dawned on him that I'm something that he shouldn't be around. He climbed the bank right across from me. He was only about 10 yards, and he went up a pine tree there, and he just stood there. And uh, that was something I. And uh, when I went in the house, I figured he'll come down while I'm in the house. I come back out an hour later. He was still in the tree. I did that again an hour later than that, and he was gone. So, but uh, a couple of years ago, a female came here and had babies on the porch. And uh, I don't know what mm. happened to them, but two of them stuck around. Mike yeah. got them feeding on dog food and so forth. They stayed here for about five months, and they finally took off. I don't know where they went. But, yeah, it's, well, it's, it's woods all around us. So. I got you. Well, it seems like that animals like that that people capture or or they take up at, around home, they, yeah. they get to a point, and then uh, 
you know, the, they take off. Uh, my friend Johnny Brinkley down uh, down here in Florida had a, a, a doe deer, a daisy. <laughs> he used to feed her chewing tobacco. She loved chewing tobacco. But I had a deer. I had a deer here. I raised also. I had him for two years, and what had happened? He was taken as could be. He got out of pen twice. I got him back both times. Uh, well, three times actually, but uh, the first two times I got him back by just carrying food. His favorite food was chocolate chip cookies. He went nuts on them. <laughs> he and he'd eat, he'd eat a whole bag if you give them to him. Right. Well, the first two times I was home and I managed to get him back in the pen and so forth. The third time, my wife calls me and she says the deer's out it across the road in the neighbor's yard. I said, tell John that was a boy who worked for me. I said, tell John to. I'd go over and get it and take some chocolate chip cookies. She says, uh, I don't have no, no chocolate chip cookies. He ate them all. And uh, I says, well, tell him try and get it. She calls me back in 20 minutes. He's up here, but the deer won't come that close to him. Well, my dumbness, I says, use a tranquilizer gun on it. Don't put too much in. And, well, he's... Uh, well, in depth to know what to do and so forth. Well, he tranquilized it. And this happens even on a dog. You don't want it to happen, but it happens. You guess the wrong way. You got a dead animal. So, anyhow, I got home. I said, Where's your deer? She said, It died. It never regained consciousness from the mm. deer. Now, yeah. this sounds cruel. This sounds cruel, but the medicine that was used. Uh, even in the literature, says you can eat the animal you shoot with it. We ate the deer. So yeah, yeah. I, well, why not? Sounds, why waste that? You know that. That's that right. Reason. Well, we, he was a nine point the first year I had him. And he was extra big, but he got fed everything, you know. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and he was he was tame, and people could pet him. And it, when he come in Ronto. He would go after me every time I went in the pen. <laughs> For some reason, he never bothered my kid. He could walk up to him and do anything he wanted, and deer never went after him. But mm. he'd go after me. I don't know why. Yeah. Well, I tell you, that that wildness or that their nature is deeply ingrained in them. And, and like this daisy, this doe, you know, she, she would leave and assume that she would have font you know getting uh -huh. bread, and then she'd come back i never had any experience with keeping wild animals of course when i was a kid i wanted to take everything home yeah uh, you right. know but uh but that wild uh that nature you know is going to override all our attempts i think to to tame them and you know change them but that's that's pretty interesting well before uh we push the record button here today we we're talking about how hot it is and you asked me if i hunt in the hot weather and uh -huh. you know i did uh when i lived back in michigan trying to get a dog ready for plot days they always had plot days the first weekend in august and the hottest time of the year really and uh, I don't know why they did. Well, I do know they did it because of the kids being out of school. Uh, 
and I used to argue all the time, well, you can you take the kids out of school for everything else. You can take them out for a couple of days, you know, to, to bring them to plot days in the spring or whatever, when the weather's decent. But anyway, I would be out there, you know, hunting in that hot weather. Michigan gets very hot and humid in the summertime, but uh, it's not fun. It, it really isn't fun. I, I go, I go a lot of nights I shouldn't go. And like you say, that last year, uh, we had three dogs, three neighbors. And we uh, took us a good half hour to get over there. And them dogs were really panting. I paid no attention at first. But then I noticed um, that uh, uh, they were really gigging two of them. I said, Patty, we better get these dogs and get out of here. Well, one of mine, and I had two dogs, and one of mine, <clears throat> he was showing a lot of sign, but I figured if I get him to a creek, we got him down in the creek, put uh, hardly any water in that creek, but what there was, we got wet mud all over him and everything else and got him in the truck. Uh, my third dog wasn't affected at all. He walked with us on the way back to the truck. We got him home, scored him off good with a hose and stuff like that. Because I, I had a dog, at, uh, it was an automoke, I believe. Or it was some kind of big hunt. I forget where. I had uh, the Homer dog that I raised out of uh, my own dogs, and he was good. Uh, I made him a grand night before he was two. And uh, I liked him. I, he, he was, to me, the complete dog. Could have had a little better mouth, but that was the only fault. I, he was out of the rocket dog that I won the state hunt with, and rocket had a good mouth. But why that pup didn't, I don't know. But he he uh, passed out, and I didn't know it. I wasn't looking at my Garmin. We was in this hunt, and um, like I know it was in Indiana that, that part, but I don't remember what, whether it was a red bone hunt or what. Well, the hunt's over. <laughs> I hadn't heard my dog in a half hour. I didn't know where he was. I get the garment out. Some Amish boys, you know, were along on the calf. And they pulled me to the side. They said, your dog's way over there uh, across the field into the next woods. He's treed. He said, we haven't heard him lately, but he was treed over there. Well, that was my dumbness for never looking at the garment or anything. So we start over there. We find him with a Garmin. He's right under a tree with two coon up it. He barked himself out, and he was passed out completely. Mm. And I thought, oh, man, he, uh, I had the black shadow with me. He's quite a character. Naturally, you know what color he is. I, shadow put him up over his shoulders and carried him all the way out of the woods till he found a creek. We got him in that creek, soaked him down real good. He couldn't stand it. He wasn't, he, he, the only thing he was doing was breathing. We got him in a truck. I, he says, what are you going to do? He calls me Uncle Freddy. What are we going to do, Uncle Freddy? I said, we're going to look for a vet's uh, name uh, or sign on the way home, but we're headed home. I, I stopped at a car wash, turned it on for just a while, scored him down real good with that. That helped a little bit. He finally started sitting up, but not doing much. Put him back in the truck. We kept it. I stopped for gas, and I'd stop maybe every half hour and check the dog. 
He finally was sitting up on his hind end in the dog box. I told Shutter, I says, he's going to be all right now. I said, he's sitting up. At least I thought so. I got all the way home. We got a hold of a vet that I knew and took him right there. He kept him three days. He says, you were lucky. He says, uh, so I had the dog maybe five days, and I decided to take, he was acting normal. I decided to take him hunting. My wife says, you're going to kill that dog. I said, no, I won't. I said, I'm just going out for one do- one dump and three a coon and come home. And that's just what I did. He treated a coon, didn't show no ill effects after that or anything like that. And, uh, and he was all right from then on. But that's a dangerous thing. I see my neighbor's dog die from uh, heat stroke also. I told her, I said, Ann, it's just a mutt, but it's her dog. Yeah, I said, your dog's got a heat stroke. He, she was sitting out in the sun all day. I said, mm. you better get escort her down with a hose or take her to a vet. Mm-hmm. Well, her dog died too. Yeah, and, it's it's kind of timely that we are talking about this, Fred, uh, here as summer's approaching. Here we are the around the 1st of June, uh, and uh, it's the most critical time for dogs. Uh, a lot of these competitions dogs go- can't take heat as far as I'm no concerned. well you know they perspire through their mouth they don't really yeah. have sweat glands like we do uh, a real brief story uh, I remember one time at plot days in southern Indiana a guy uh, rolled into the grounds there he had a dog box that he'd put inside of a truck cap uh, actually, That's it was bad. one That's of those slide-in camper-type things. Uh, had, I know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, and when he went to get his dogs out, he had two dead ones, and he had three dogs in that box, and he had one uh, that Dr. Asa Kelly from Michigan uh, was a vet that coon hunted. Maybe you met him yeah, before. Yeah, I know. Yeah, and uh, Doc Kelly uh, got him down to a pond, there and got him in the water and and you know worked and worked and worked with him unfortunately a lot of times the dogs that go through that heat stroke like that don't recover all their mental faculties and so that's forth, right you know and they're never quite the same well fred yeah, it's Dwayne, great yeah go ahead Dwayne buff when uh, we first met which is quite a few years ago he came over to one of our hunts in Pennsylvania, I believe it was Washington, PA, and he had a cap on his truck. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he lost six dogs to heat prostration there at that hunt. Uh, him and his buddies all had a couple dogs each, and I'm almost sure he lost, he, or else he had six dogs in there and he lost at least half, but it, it wasn't uh, anything good, that's for sure. But wow, that's that's amazing. Way when mm. they die like that. It sure is. And and these dogs that treeing, you know, especially in the south here where the vegetation is so thick in all year round really, but especially in the summertime, there's really no air to be had no. in there around those trees. And uh, well it's a word to the wise. Fred, our time has gotten away from us again, my friend. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to a real good report from your doctor. Uh, I hope everything goes well there. 
Yeah, they they tell me all the time, you lived 100. I say, yeah, I'll believe that when I see it. But, uh, <laughs> well, my mother uh, did that for yeah, sure. Yeah, so. magazine. She was yeah, I think old. you're tougher than she was. So I, I'm, <laughs> I fully expect you to make that for sure. <laughs> Fred, so good to talk to you again. Always enjoy our visits, and we'll be back next week, okay? Okay, JJ called me. He liked my bear story. And, uh, <laughs> well, give a shout out to JJ there. <laughs> uh, hey, hey, good night, JJ. <laughs> see, he's quite a character. He's yeah. got a good squirrel dog. He don't coon anymore. He's got a good squirrel dog. Well, we'll have to uh, maybe get JJ on the on the podcast one of these hey, days. Oh man, if he hears this, uh, he'll be sitting by the <laughs> by the, the phone, huh? Well, yeah. all right, Fred the Moran, care. the Red Bone Man, the one and only. Thank you, Fred. You have a great day. Okay, Steve. Thanks. You bet, folks. That's all for another episode of the Gone to the Dogs podcast. If you are looking for me, wonder what happened to me. You know that I've gone to the dog.